So I'm going to talk about meditation, primarily from a logical, practical, biological standpoint. My main point is going to be that our bodies and minds are geared to meditate. Put it another way, if our bodies and minds were not able to meditate, we couldn't meditate. So meditation is using natural functions that already exist inside our body. Meditation is the utilization, honing, practice of natural functions that human beings are born with. It's somewhat analogous to reading. Our species is supposed to be approximately 200,000 years old, and there was no reading probably until, say, five to 3,000 years ago. So for hundreds of thousands of years, there were human beings who had the same nervous system, the same brain as we do, but they did not read. But eventually this capacity that we have was utilized by people. And in fact, there's very few places in the world today where people don't read. So meditation is similar. It's a capacity we have that all people have, but not all places in the world are using it. In the past 20 years and with greater acceleration, in the past 10 years, we've seen a spread of meditation around the world, and many people are using it, but most are not. So um, we're in an era, like an era, say, in the 1700s, when people were just getting the idea that most people could read. It used to be believed that only if you were a nobleman could you read, noble man could you read. Now we know everybody can read. So it used to be believed that only if you were an exotic hermit in the Himalayas could you meditate. Now we know everybody can meditate. The analogy I'll be using throughout is like exercise. We have muscles. We can use our muscles, cultivate them, and make them strong, or we can become weak. We have a mind. We can use our mind, educate it, strengthen it, or we can run for public office. <laughs> because meditation uses our natural function, all meditations, or almost all meditations, share certain features in common. The word meditation means the utilization of certain biological functions to optimize them practice them, to maximize them. I'll also give some consideration to one particular type of meditation, Vipassana meditation, which is the only one I have practiced extensively and know well. So I'm not going to say that all meditations are the same thing. I'm saying all meditations share a common ground, and then they also have features that make them each unique and different. One of the features of meditation I'll come back to is that 
that in its ancient traditions, which are not necessarily always correct, but it's interesting to look at the ancient traditions. In the ancient traditions, meditation was always taught for free. I'm going to point out why that's a very important feature, and I'd like to point out that everything my meditation teacher did in his lifetime was done for free. Everything I've done in my lifetime is for free, and that changes the way people receive it, and it changes the way people teach it. If it's taught for free, at least this much importance should be given to that feature that there's no need to sell it, there's no need to spin it, there's no need to exaggerate what it can and cannot do. And I'm also going to mention to you today, I'll not only point out what's so excellent about meditation and why I pursue it and why so many people like it, I'll also point out its limits and some of the way its claims today have been exaggerated, so I'll be fair and honest because I have no economic stake in it. All of life can be defined by one central feature. So if you're an amoeba, you only have one cell, you're floating around in a drop of water, or if you're a blue whale, or if you're a human being, this feature defines your life. Your life is geared to maintain dynamic constancy around a middle ground. If we couldn't maintain constancy, in a minute or two we would disappear. The temperature would be too cold, it would be too hot. The humidity would be too dry or too wet. And uh, our food supply would be inadequate or uh, a surfeit. So we're constantly regulating ourselves to adjust ourselves to something similar to who we were a minute ago. And this constant re-regulation towards the middle, that is not one extreme or another extreme, has been given the word homeostasis. Homeo means keeping the same, and stasis, keeping uh, steady the same. Recently, the word homeostasis has been changed by biologists to allostasis, which means keeping things almost the same. So we'll go into that uh, distinction a little bit. Let's look at a few things that define our life and these will be examples of how meditation will be understandable as a natural biological tool that we can use. The easiest example is our body temperature. We have to maintain a constant body temperature, quite constant. If our temperature rises up to 104, we're in danger. Above that, we're really not in danger. You're almost certainly near death or dead. If your body temperature falls below 90, you're in a state of hypothermia. Occasionally, people have survived severe 
if you become overly hypothermic, you die. So all of you outdoors people in Boulder, you go skiing in winter, first thing you think about is your body temperature and your preparing your clothing and your fluid to be able to maintain a relatively constant body temperature. The same thing is true for blood pressure. If your blood pressure goes too high, you have a stroke and you die. If your blood pressure goes too low, you go into shock and you die. Body temperature is more tightly regulated our blood pressure is more dynamic. For example, I walked up the stairs just now and I'm sure my blood pressure went up. Now I'm sitting still, I'm sure my blood pressure has gone down. But whether it's dynamically regulated, like blood pressure, or relatively tightly regulated, like temperature, the principle applies. We have to maintain a regularity. If we can't maintain constancy, we are in trouble or even threatened with death or death. This is true not just for body temperature and blood pressure, but for thousands or tens of thousands of functions. Those of you who studied cell biology know that every function in every cell were said to have something like between 10 and 100 trillion cells. That's trillion. And every one of those cells is regulated in tens of thousands of ways to maintain constancy. One of the most important features of who we are is that our cells have to reproduce at the right rate. For example, as you rub your skin by living, you're killing all skin cells. So skin cells are dying. You have to replace them. You have to replace them at the right rate. If you don't replace them quickly enough, you become sore. Eventually, your body would be exposed to uh, bacteria and other parasites. You might be endangered. But if you replace skin cells too quickly, that's called cancer. So we have a problem in every single cell in our body. How quickly it's allowed to die, how quickly it's allowed to reproduce. And the same issue, the same homeostatic issue is there. Proper regulation around the middle, not too fast, not too slow, temperature not too high, temperature not too low. Let's move to our mind. Generally, it feels to people like we have no regulation of our mind. Probably everybody who's here in this audience tonight came here because they feel they have no regulation of their mind. In fact, we have regulation of our mind. It's like body temperature. We can't maintain our body temperatures very well. The single most important technological invention in the history of our species, you can close your eyes and take a guess. Most people think the iPhone, the, the uh, railroad car. The most important technological invention was the needle. Human beings have very poor thermal regulation. We need 
need to regulate our body temperature, we can't do it very well. And if we are in a relatively constant climate, we can survive. If we're going to spread all over the globe, as we've done, we need clothes. And to make clothes, you can't just kill a bear and throw its skin over your body. You need to sew clothing. Sewn clothing is what enabled the spread of human beings across the planet. So our thermoregulation needs a boost, and that boost is our clothing. We can put clothing on, take it off, but we can use clothing to cool and heat ourselves. So in the same way, our mind is regulated, but it's not regulated very well. We have regulation of our mind that doesn't feel good enough, just like if you try walking into Ice Age Europe with just one bearskin over your shoulder. You need to have clothing before you can enter the Ice Age. So in our mind, let's take an example. Your, uh, the commonest example today, you're driving anywhere. You're driving in or out of Boulder. You're driving in or out of Boston or Seattle or Washington or New York. And, and there's too much traffic. I, I mentioned earlier I gave a talk at Yale and my grandson attended the talk. And in the middle of the talk, he pooped and started to cry and had to be extracted from the auditorium. So I'm used to this sort of situation. I hope the rest of you are used to it. So you're driving in or out of Boulder, and the first thing you notice is there's too much traffic. And 10 years ago, there was never this much traffic. And if you can remember back 50 years, there was never traffic. And the first thing is annoyance. So one feeling that we have frequently as human beings is annoyance or even anger. We all know that people get angrier in traffic than anywhere else, and that's because you're in the privacy of your iron age of vehicle. Now, anger feels bad. First thing that happens to you when you get angry is you want to dispel it. And there are generally two ways of dispelling it. One is to act upon it. You give the person in the car, you just cut you off, you see they're looking in the rearview mirror, and you give them a manual signal of crudeness. Another way to dispel your anger is you talk yourself out of it. You say, well, that guy's a jerk, but why should I get upset due to his misconduct? And you try to reduce your anger intellectually. Just as our body has a biofeedback mechanism around temperature, for example, if you get cold, you immediately think of putting on more clothing. If you get hot, you immediately think of taking off one of your layers. Our body has immediate biofeedback around our mood. As soon as you get angry, anger is often a useful trait. It was used to regulate relationships between people. 
But it feels bad. And that bad feeling about anger is immediate biofeedback that says reduce this anger. So we do have regulation of our thoughts and feelings. But the regulation doesn't feel very effective. Let's take an opposite situation. You feel very good. You're planning a vacation. You're looking at the internet. You're seeing that the place that you're going is quite beautiful. You're looking for hotels or restaurants or beaches. And you get quite excited. And it's getting later and later at night. And you keep saying to yourself, I'll look at one more website and then I'll shut down the computer. But then you look at another one after that, another one after that. Even pleasant feelings don't always feel good. Just like we have to learn to modulate our anger, we have to modulate our happiness and excitement. One of the things we notice about little children, they can't modulate their feelings. And they're delightful to be around. They get very excited. They get very happy. But if you're an experienced parent or grandparent, you know what is coming. They're going to start to scream and cry and have a tantrum. So they can't shut down their happiness without a massive explosion. And hopefully most of the people here have learned better. But we also learn that pleasure is not entirely pleasurable. Unregulated emotion of any kind does not feel good, and our system sends us a signal, cool it. Meditation is, as I said, studied, learned, cultivated, practiced, augmented capacity to use our own regulatory mechanisms and improve upon them. Our nervous system has within it modulatory capacity. For example, when we concentrate We use the, our prefrontal cortex, that means the part of the brain that's under your forehead. And the activation of that through concentration immediately shuts down the limbic system, which means the areas of the brain that are necessary to be activated in order to feel emotions. So when you concentrate, you feel less emotional. That's built in to the wiring of a human being. So, for example, if you're in college and you break up with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your romantic interest, and you go to your friends and say, are you really upset? First, they'll be very empathic. Well, that's too bad. I'm sorry you broke up. And after a while, they'll say, why don't you just go back and hit the books? Because hitting the books, studying, will shut down your emotions. Concentration will shut down your emotions. Almost all meditations include some form of concentration. 
penetration gives you some object to concentrate your mind on, generally a mental object. And as you concentrate upon that, your limbic system shuts down, or relatively shuts down, and you feel less emotional. So as soon as you start to concentrate, you begin to get the first benefit of meditation, which is a certain calm and peace that accompanies concentration. But as you try to concentrate, if you're working with something that's very dramatic, such as a chemistry textbook with a table of the elements, and you look at the damn thing and you know you're not going to pass the test, there's, I don't know, people think there's intelligent design. Was it intelligent to make so many elements? So there's a little fear and there's a little external motivation to concentrate on the table of the elements. When you meditate, you're generally given a very quiet object to focus on. For example, your breath going in and out. And it's harder to concentrate on it. So you get two effects. First, you get a little concentration, which calms you down. And next, you get loss of concentration. Both of those are equally important. Neither one is meditation. Let's go back to blood pressure. When we're studying how our natural functions work, we notice that Temperature is very tightly regulated. Nevertheless, our temperature does change every second during the course of the day. But blood pressure more dramatically changes. Every time you do something that requires vigorous use of your musculature, you have to push blood into your muscles fast. So you need higher blood pressure. Every time you relax, you don't need high blood pressure, and it's a little dangerous to have sustained high blood pressure. So we can keep changing our blood pressure throughout the day all the time, higher, lower, higher, lower. Now, in meditation reproduces a similar kind of mental function. Concentrate, lose concentration, concentrate, lose concentration. As you're losing concentration in meditation, you're becoming aware of your unguarded, unfiltered, and unintentional thoughts. If you're studying the periodic table of the elements, all your thoughts are intentional. If you're planning a vacation, your thoughts are intentional. If you're talking to somebody, your thoughts are intentional. Even when you're daydreaming, there's a certain conscious control that you're putting upon your thought processes. But when you meditate, your intention is to concentrate on something such as your breath. And the thinking that is moving away from the concentration is entirely unintentional. Therefore, you're coming in contact with your unintentional mind. You could say your less conscious mind. You could say your pre-conscious mind. So in meditation, you immediately gain two benefits. First, the calm that concentration brings. And second, 
increased self-awareness and self-knowledge. Now, some of the things that come upon your mind unintentionally may be quite pleasant or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Some daydream or some thinking that's similar to what you were thinking before you started to meditate. But some of your thoughts might be unpleasant. You begin to have a worry. You begin to feel angry. You remember that that jerk cut you off in traffic and you think, I talked myself out of feeling angry. Maybe I should have used that rude manual declaration of American independence. And you regret not having done so. So your daydreams as you're meditating, which are entirely unintentional, since your intention is to concentrate on something, your unintentional daydreams reveal to you parts of you that are not necessarily what you wish to have revealed to you, such as you get unnecessarily angry, or such as you get unnecessarily anxious about your upcoming exam, or anxious about some problem you have at work. So, a third feature of meditation, the first is you're trying to concentrate, the second is you lose concentration and gain value from that, and the third is that you have to take the position, the stance of self-acceptance, non-judgmental awareness. You try to be aware of what you're thinking and feeling and not to judge it and to accept it. The non-judgmental feature of the mind is one of the key features of almost every kind of meditation. As you practice this meditation, depending upon how long you practice it, by long I mean both in one session, let's say whether you meditate for 10 minutes or whether you meditate for an hour, and by long I also mean how many years, for example, those of you who started in 1947, long before I did, that's very long practice. Depending on how long you practice it, the number of thoughts and the quality of thoughts that rise up as you slip away from concentration, the, the quality of those thoughts will become increasingly self-revealing. And there will be an increasing challenge to your self-acceptance. Therefore, there's a kind of an irony in meditation. One thing is, it's easy to practice because it uses the natural calming mechanisms of our body and our mind. And the second thing is, it's not that easy to practice because we see ourselves revealed to ourselves and we want to be non-judgmental, but easier said than done. That leads us to two further features of most meditations. 
Another feature is as you practice, more and more of your natural, relaxing, restorative, peaceful attributes can be called forth by you. You're practicing calming, settling yourself down, accepting yourself, sitting still, generally sitting still with your eyes closed, and being peaceful. And the more you practice it, the better you get at it. Different people may differ. Some people are more anxious. Some people are more agitated. But whether you're anxious, agitated, not anxious, not agitated, the more you practice calming yourself down, the better you'll get at it. One of the reasons for that is there are many calming features in the human being. I mentioned how your brain can shut down emotionality through concentration. But we have other systems of calm. For example, most people are aware of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic nervous system drives our body into increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, uh, increased focusing of the eyes. It's the fight or flight system that we developed as we were evolving and were generally hunting animals. But we also have the parasympathetic nervous system that shuts down many of our natural functions, slows down our heart rate, slows down our digestive processes, makes us more relaxed, more like uh, a resting animal or more like a hibernating animal. As you meditate, you learn to connect to and be able to consciously um, bring up, rise into your control these previously unconscious responses like your parasympathetic nervous system. Of course, you're not sitting there thinking parasympathetic nervous system, come on up. But you're automatically, intuitively practicing calming yourself down, being at peace, just observing, just observing your respiration or whatever other object. And that is in itself a constant effort to contact these calming and peaceful attributes. Some other attributes, as you are agitated, your respiration goes up. As you're calm, your respiration goes down. When you're agitated, your heart rate goes up. When you're calm, your heart rate goes down. There are subtler mechanisms. When you are agitated, your hypothalamus, a part of the brain that regulates our, you could say, our uh, basic animal, so body temperature, blood pressure, respiration, and sense of calm. The hypothalamus can be intuitively contacted by us as we calm down our natural functions are given permission to be at rest and yet active. That active rest, alertness along with peace or ease, is the natural state of a resting animal that we might see in our domestic pets. Cats are great examples of that. 
comes to sleep and yet totally awake. All those processes, we learn to regulate the more we practice them. But the other thing that happens is more of yourself is rising up as you're not staying on the object of your meditation and those thoughts are rising to the surface and feelings are rising to the surface and with thoughts and feelings physiological processes are rising to the surface. By physiological processes I mean when you're thinking of the guy who cut you off in traffic and you are mentally rehearsing what you should or shouldn't have done with your right hand in that process, you may elevate your heart rate, or you may slow down your heart rate. So, thoughts, emotions, and physiological functions can come under your control, but they can slip out of your control. And as you meditate longer, for example, since 1947, you will then have rising to the surface of your mind Things that are unfamiliar to you about yourself or less familiar to you about yourself. So meditation becomes a dynamic dialogue between learning to be non-judgmentally at peace, physiologically awake and relaxed. And the other side of the dialogue is by being so much at peace, you're giving permission for your mind, body, emotions to rise up in increasingly unfamiliar and challenging ways. So, one thing that should be obvious about this is you become increasingly adept at dealing with decreasingly comfortable psychological phenomena. So the more you meditate, the more you are able to modulate yourself, to know yourself, not judge yourself, not suppress or repress yourself, but modulate yourself. But the second thing is, it could also be true that there are things that happen to you when you meditate that are overwhelming. Therefore, meditation is best practiced as part of a learning situation. It's really not going to be fruitful to meditate entirely on your own. One of two things will happen. Either you will halt because you'll intuit that some difficulty is about to happen or you won't hold and some difficulty will happen. Let's look at a meditation school or meditation tradition that gives you the buffering effect of having a teacher and a tradition by tradition I mean a long practiced route on which many people have learned to meditate increasingly self-aware and increasingly 
adroitly managing who you are, who you really are. So the meditation that I practice is called the Vipassana Meditation. The name was on the posters. The word comes from an ancient Indian language, Pali, which was the language in which the teaching of the Buddha was recorded. Vipassana was taught by the Buddha, but I'm not a Buddhist and no one needs to be a Buddhist to practice meditation. I learned meditation initially in 1974 from a teacher named Mr. Galenka, who taught entirely for free so that he had no need to get more students or convince people to come to him or he had no need to sell meditation cushions. He had no need to convince people to buy his courses or his products. He just offered it for free. He had been a businessman and he had retired by the time Susan and I met him. The courses he taught are similar to courses that have been taught for, what, 30 years in Colorado. Still being taught here. And the information on where they're taught when you take a course like this will be um, in back at the end of the talk. So the course was 10 days. And the practice consists of three days of watching the breath, somewhat as I just described, and seven more days of watching your body sensations. The importance of watching body sensations as a focus of meditation, to me, is multiple. One reason is it's non-sectarian. It is not becoming a Buddhist. It's not saying any particular mantra or prayer or requiring belief in any sort of deity. Another reason is as we discussed, meditation operates to modulate the mind, emotions, and body. But the body is the one that to us is the least well known. Exactly how do you contact your parasympathetic nervous system or your hypothalamus? If you're working with your body sensations, you're working directly with the body via your mind and emotions. So that triad is instantly integrated. Finally, another important reason to work with your body sensations for me, a very important one that helped convince me that Vipassana would be the meditation I would like, is that our body sensations all consist of changes in the atoms, molecules, and cells in our body. So we have an emotion, and then some neurotransmitter is sending chemicals across a synapse, or we feel cold and some sensory nerve is sending signals back to our brain. Everything that happens in our body is a process that involves transformation of chemicals. And that links us to the scientific worldview. We understand that meditation is not magical. It's not about any person or force or being interfering with us, for us, or against us. It's the utilization of the natural chemistry, biology, 
in physics of life. We observe the changes that are going on in our body. Learn to be calm and peaceful with those changes. And by observing our body, we end up observing our thoughts and our feelings. And we're learning to be calm and peaceful through observing the sensations of change in our body. So the most important elements are observation, neutral observation of sensations which represent change, and the goal is to be peaceful with that observation. So it's 10 days of practicing inner peace. The first question that comes up in most people's mind, came up in my mind, is why 10 days? It seems like a pretty big investment. As meditation has become mainstreamed in the United States, the, the investment you make has become increasingly financially expensive and decreasingly time-consuming. Now you can, first you can learn to meditate in a weekend, then it became a day, then it became every alternative Thursday for three weeks, then became downloading a Headspace app, and be count, downloading a shorter app. And just about two weeks ago, there was a front page article on the New York Times by a very excellent reporter, David Geddes, and it said how to meditate. So now you can meditate just by reading the front page of the New York Times. So if you're going away for a 10-day meditation course, maybe you're just being duped. But since the people don't get any money for it, there's no reason to dupe you. So the obvious reasons to take a 10-day meditation course are as follows. Well, you get a deeper experience. It's like the difference between going to a soccer camp that lasts one hour or a soccer camp that lasts 10 days. It's like the difference between taking an online course and becoming a full-time student at a university. It's just a richer, deeper experience. But furthermore, as I discussed, meditation is so natural and easy, it just activates the processes we already have. And it's not easy because the processes that we have are often difficult for us to be at peace with. Well, in a 10-day course, you have a teacher, and you have a teacher utilizing a tradition that's been going on unbroken for thousands of years. People have been meditating for a long time. There's no reason to ignore the accumulated wisdom of the past. I don't think there's a reason to blindly accept the past, but there is a reason to tap into it and see if it has something to offer us. And uh, in general, the uh, wise person looks to the history of the culture that we're in to find some wisdom. So in the university, you always start learning something by learning its historical trajectory. Even when you study science, you start with the history of science. So when you study meditation, you start with the traditions and how you have been taught over millennia. So you get increased knowledge in how to meditate, increased safety in facing deeper experiences, 
and deeper, more sustained self-knowledge and ability to modulate yourself and accept yourself. Let's look at a few more advantages of meditation that will go along with most kinds of meditation. It doesn't have to be any one kind. As you meditate, your thoughts are rising and you're trying to go back to, let's say, your body sensations. But your thoughts keep rising up and you keep letting go of them, going back to sensations. But your thoughts keep rising up. Every time you do that, you're disrupting the habit pattern of thinking. This is not to say meditators are not able to think. But meditators learn also to not think, to disrupt thinking. When I studied the history of science, one of the most important principles that came out of the study of great discoveries in science is that discoveries typically follow on moments when the scientist attends away, stops trying to solve the problem. There are many problems in life which, if you keep trying to solve them, you keep trying to solve them in some habituated, patterned, repetitive way. And you can't solve them because you're stuck in literally one synaptic network. You're sending messages down one system of your mind. You keep sending the same message, which is, how do I solve this? How do I solve this? And your mind reproduces the same answers, which are unsatisfying or ineffectual. When you attend away from that problem, you may be better at solving it. That's why we frequently say, oh, just sleep on it. But what if you attend away from all your problems, not just one of them? So meditation is a disruption of all patterned habitual thinking. It's not an aggressive disruption. It's a movement away from thought and a movement towards neutral observation. And that movement is in reference to every joy you have. So one of the thrills of meditation and when people take a 10-day meditation course and towards you ask them, was it worth it? One of the thrills is people go, oh, I solved this problem. And uh, it could be any kind of problem that people, sometimes people didn't know they were thinking about it. And it could be a problem you have with your brother or sister or a problem you have with your uh, mother or son or a professional problem at work or a problem with what to do with your life. One of the big problems that often gets solved during meditation courses is, what should I do with my life? If you think about it, and you're not meditating, if you don't think about it, there's some chance that meditation will help you solve. Another feature of this attending away from thought and attending towards observation of body sensations without reacting, without judging, just observing, but not trying to think, although thinking, not thinking, thinking, not thinking, is you let go of the grip that thoughts have upon you. 
instead of believing in your thoughts, you're practicing letting go of your thoughts. To me, this is the crown jewel of meditation. There's a great psychologist named Daniel Kahneman. He's the only psychologist to get the Nobel Prize. He's uh, emeritus who retired at Princeton. And he wrote his uh, legacy book called Thinking Fast and Slow. It came out about five years ago. He said the most important finding of all of modern psychology, quite a statement, the most important finding of all modern psychology is that human beings are overconfident. We believe that we know things that we don't know. For example, if you ask people to predict the future, and then you ask them to predict how accurate their prediction will be, almost all people overestimate their ability to predict the outcome of future events. If you take professionals, some of the earliest studies of this were done on psychiatrists. You ask psychiatrists to predict well, what's going to be the outcome of your treatment on this patient. What's the prognosis? Predict how this patient will do. Psychiatrists are overconfident. They think they know things that they don't know. These studies have been done on many groups of people. If you ask people uh, what kind of a driver, I know you're a busy person, we'll give you a very quick test. Uh, what kind of a driver are you? There's only three answers, above average, average, or below average. Almost everybody is above average. It's a little known factor that at the end of the day, all the average people are evaporated. I, I am a great fan of Daniel Kahneman, but I also ask, why did they do all these studies? Why didn't they just read the front page of the newspaper? Human beings are always overconfident. People believe they know which book tells the answer to life. People believe they know what happens after death. People believe they know what happened before they were born. People believe they know the right way to fix the school system, even if they're not educators. People believe they know how to run the country. People believe they know things that they have no evidence for, no experience with, but people are overconfident. I like to think that the practice of letting go of thoughts, that's a part of most meditations, and that brings you back to a basic reality about yourself, which you can know, which is what you're feeling how to modulate that feeling, how to come to peace with yourself. I hope that meditation helps many people in that way. There's another important feature about meditation that has the more spiritual qualities that many people look for. People come to meditation largely to cultivate inner peace, to feel better, just to get those basic biological learning practice and how to be at peace with yourself that you can learn just by observing your own thoughts, feelings, and emotions. But people also meditate for a second very important reason, and that is to feel better about the world. 
can say that all people have two sources of suffering. One is the suffering of being unable to regulate themselves, get along with themselves well, and hopefully meditation will help them get along with themselves. The other is getting along in the world. The world is not an easy place. I have a friend who's a, a great, uh, I would say, noble human being, a 70-year-old man of very high attainment, one of the very important people in our country. And he just had a 70th birthday party, and he's got every kind of success that you can imagine, uh, both in family life and in professional life. And he started his 70th speech he gave to his friends at his birthday party. He said, I never knew life could be so hard. So we know that even if we are self-possessed, calm people, we still have to face many difficulties. When people meditate, and regardless of your skill, everybody gets some progress, some movement towards well-being. When you open your eyes, you feel better about the world. And that's because you feel better about yourself. That feeling better about the world is a biological state that rises up because you are activating the peaceful systems inside of your being. There are hormones that we transmit to other people when we feel good. And incidentally, we transmit those hormones to other animals when we feel good. And everybody knows you can feel afraid of a dog or you can like a dog almost immediately because there's communication that occurs that's um, very basic. When you meditate, those systems of nonverbal, non-intellectual, basic gut, emotional, hormonal, relational feelings send out the immediate feeling of the peace and harmony that you have felt in meditation. And other people around you may pick it up. That's how sensitive they are. If you practice meditation over a lifetime, you may well be spending a lifetime transmitting to other people the feeling of loving kindness, what the Buddha called metta. And you may be transmitting it even when you feel somewhat agitated because it's a baseline state you've attained. And even in temporary agitation, say at work or in a marriage, that baseline remains, just like if you know how to drive and you're not driving, you still know how to drive. So meditation is not merely a self-related, self-absorbed, selfish activity. Meditation is a social activity. This is not to promise that every time you meditate, you will then get along with all people, or that you'll feel good about a world that all of us recognize is still in a state of very primitive disarray. But it does mean that regardless of your intellectual content, 
meditation will help you feel better about yourself and will help you feel better about other people and will help other people feel better about you some of the time. We live in the most dynamically changing time in the history of our planet. I had a mother who lived to be 104 years old. She was born in 1906. When she was born, a car was a rare sight. Indoor plumbing was for the wealthy. Telephone was very expensive and exotic usage. By the time she died, her grandson could show her a smartphone or a laptop. Her, all her family was jetting here and there. And we expect that this rate of change is going to continue. There is a tremendous backlash against the change that we all experience. And that backlash is making many people in the world angry or violent. I like to imagine that meditation will help many people feel more comfortable with change. And that the more people who feel comfortable with change, the less we'll have this backlash against the inevitable changes that are sweeping through our human community. Many of the changes are product of the accumulated mind power that we can bring in solving problems by accumulated mind power. I mean, we all know that we work in teams. We work through published data. We work through uh, data that's on the web. And so more and more people can place their intellect up against our problems. So this capacity to feel peaceful, this capacity to spread a peaceful feeling may also help us adjust to a new and better world and bring some salve onto the people who feel so threatened. Let's stop and we can have some questions. Do you think that de-identification with the self is critical to meditation practices? Well, there's many depths there's many depths of meditation. Some people are going to prefer to meditate in a less intense way. And those people may be seeking simply the calming feeling on a day-to-day -day basis. For those people, I don't think de-identification with the self is critical. But in Vipassana meditation, one of the things you will certainly experience, even if you just take one 10-day course, is that the way that we think of ourselves is quite artificial and inaccurate. We hold a view of ourselves that is not authentic to who we are. And as you meditate over time, you see many, many features of yourself arise and pass away. And you want to come to understand that what we think we are is not what we are. And you get a much deeper sense of self that is connected to 
those on my periodic table of the elements were a collection of temporary compounds stuck together for 60 or 80 years, and then we evaporate. So de-identification with the sense of self is a feature of deeper meditation. Um, this, this one uses a, a word that comes from the Vipassana tradition, so I'll read it and then I'll translate it. Can you touch on Sankara's and what Goenka calls the final goal? Sankara's means reaction. In the Buddhist tradition, the Buddhist tradition is not the same as Buddhism. In the Buddhist tradition, there is a reference to the Buddha as a person who overcame all reaction patterns so the Buddha could respond to life, but he never reacted to life. In other words, if he was driving a car in rush hour, he would know that both his hands would stay on the steering wheel and he wouldn't want to flick one upwards. This image of the Buddha as a perfected human being is the same thing as saying he attained Nibbana. Nibbana means free of all reaction patterns, free of all unconscious motives, purely conscious, purely aware of what he's doing, never responding to some primitive, primitive animal instinct like anger or fear. So the goal of Vipassana, the theoretical goal, is to walk the path as far as the Buddha did, to a state of freedom from all reactions. Most people don't get that far. Our fundamental assumption that seems to be part of the theory of meditation is that we want a calming feeling. I don't want to live a calm life, but rather a full life as characterized by the full depth, of emotion, uh, full depth of emotions, good and bad. Should I meditate? Fantastic question. Um, we get this question a lot. Susan and I conduct meditation courses, as do other people here, like uh, our friends, Ray and Pat, who've been conducting meditation courses in Colorado for many years, and Mark um, and others. So when we conduct a meditation course, this question is asked almost every course, sometimes multiple times, and typically by younger people. So it's a very important question. I don't want to feel calm. I want a full life characterized by the depth of emotions, good and bad. Should I meditate? The answer is yes. Here's why. The calming feeling, I gave emphasis to the idea that meditation is an oscillation and you approach this calm state and then you deviate from the calm state. So a good part of what I said in this talk was a discussion about how the thoughts and feelings and physiological states that rise up in you 
as you meditate, become deeper and deeper. So actually, a meditation course, if you take a 10-day meditation course, is a rich brew, a strong experience, a powerful experience. For many people, even one course is a life-transforming experience. As I said, also, for some people, it's overwhelming, and people who fear that shouldn't meditate. But if you fear that meditation will make you flat or constricted, I hope my talk gives you the opposite impression. Meditation makes you a more deeply conscious, aware, and richly integrated with the depth of your thoughts, feelings, and body. If I am fighting for a cause, and I am passionate about it, how do I purge the deep emotions that continue to arise during meditation? That's another great question that we also get quite frequently. So, people want to be engaged in some meaningful social activity, and sometimes meaningful activity social activities bring conflict. That's what I was talking about at the end of the talk. There are certainly people who are filled with fear and anger. And if you are active in society, you encounter those people. So, how do you purge the emotions that continue to rise during meditation? I think the um, the learning curve for the person who wrote this, you've got the word purge, and that is where you want to make a, a shift in your view of what meditation is. I assume you're a meditator, because you said it arise during meditation. Don't, don't wish to purge anything. Let it happen. So meditation is non-judgmental, neutral observation of mind, emotions, and body. Vipassana, focusing on body sensations. Don't try to purge anything. Just uh, accept the awareness level that you have. There is, of course, the possibility that the positive or virtuous cycle can be activated by you in your difficult situation. The positive or virtuous cycle is to recognize that the calmer, more productive you can be in the way you deal with your uh, passion, social cause, the more you may be able to bring a balanced mind to your situation and come home with a balanced mind. But I don't mean to be preachy because I know that's easier said than done, particularly when social anger is being stirred up. So the first step for the person who wrote this is, uh, please let go of the word purge and instead just observe and accept. Could you speak about how Vipassana affects epigenetics? Epigenetics means, well, we're born with certain genes, and that's our inheritance. But as we live, 
keys are turned on and off. So, for example, in your liver, you don't get any skin cells. All our cells have the same DNA. It's only one uniform DNA throughout our entire body, but we learn to turn off some of the DNA. So in the liver, some of the DNA is shut down and only liver cells come up. In the skin, some of the DNA is shut down and only skin cells come up. As we live emotionally, interpersonally, intellectually, experientially, we are turning on and turning off genes. That's why if you don't get an education by a certain age, it gets a little harder to get that education. You can still get it, but some of your genes have not been activated. They're learning genes. So epigenetics is a study of how life events impact upon the actual strand of DNA and some of the proteins that cover the DNA. Um, the answer is, I don't have a clue. There is active research being done on the effect of meditation upon epigenetics. Um, I would consider that research in its infancy. Um, this question is about Vipassana as opposed to all of meditation. I would say Vipassana changes many people's lives very dramatically. It would be a surprise if it weren't affecting your epigenetics, but to claim that I know would be in an inaccurate claim. How can drugs impact meditation? Well, by drugs, uh, maybe it means uh, non-pharmaceuticals, so recreational drugs. Well, um, if your goal is to have a deep experience of who you are as you are, your authentic, biologically based, chemically based, DNA based self as you've emerged into this world, then a drug is an addition that is going in some slightly different direction. It's the attempt to alter who you are through an artificial additive. I'm not uh, moralistically condemning it, but it's not exactly heading in the same direction. So it's somewhat uh, like going in two different directions at the same time. Of course, thousands or tens of thousands or maybe millions of people have taken drugs at one stage in their life and then come to meditation at another stage in their life. And those people tend to see the drugs they've taken as just another life experience. But generally, uh, drug experiences, in retrospect, feel as profound than they felt at the time. Uh, other people may experience it differently. But the general viewpoint in meditation would be drug experiences are not going to be contributory. Maybe one or two more. It's getting close to 7.30. Do you believe there are any dangers to meditation? Yes. Um, I alluded to that. Some people will have something on their mind that's just too upsetting. Uh, there are two examples of kinds of things that 
Uh, if a person has these situations, they should meditate with caution. They should ask meditation teachers ahead of time how many do you think it's appropriate, and then they should work with the teacher to uh, be in the zone of safety. Feedback. Those two uh, examples would be a person who knows they have had a very powerful, terrifying, overwhelming experience. Examples, combat veterans, women who've been raped, people who've been displaced by war, people who grew up in violent households and have violent memories. So people with that kind of thought and feeling and physiological state. Well, all those things, traumas are all their thoughts. You think about the trauma, their emotions, you, you feel the obsidian, and they're physiological. You go through the states of uh, biological arousal once again, as you remember them. People with that kind of strong experience should consult with a meditation teacher. All of our centers in Vipassana will consult with a student ahead of time and let you know we don't think you should take it or help you'll be fine. Just you need to work with the teacher a little more closely. So that's where the vetting should be done. Another example of potential danger is a person whose mind loses its executive function under stress. Um, examples are uh, people whose minds have gone off into delusions and can't be called 